With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, You can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit IRAAdvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's IRAAdvantage.com. How that could possibly happen. How anyone could be that irresponsible. That is Joe Biden, the current leader of the free world, expressing amazement. He did that in September of last year after an FBI raid on Donald Trump's home. He said, how could anybody be that irresponsible to take home classified documents, to hold them in their own personal possession after a presidency? Well, guess what? Old Joe is going to get hoist by his own petard, to use a Shakespearean phrase. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Let me tell you about that, and let me tell you where it fits into this whole question. Donald Trump, we're told, was the keeper of classified documents, the man who put American national security at risk. Yeah, that's what they said. Well, now that it's Joe Biden who's a bit on the hook, and uh, reporters are asking him questions, and you know what? Old Joe is dodging those questions left and right. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to the best conversation in talk journalism. It happens right here every day, and you're invited to join in if you care. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll, and I'll get into the poll question in just a bit. But you really had to know deep in your mind that Joe Biden's failing presidency came equipped with double standards. After all, if the Democrats didn't have double standards, why, they'd have none at all. And with the discovery of hidden classified documents in Joe Biden's private Washington, D.C. think tank, the discovery was announced yesterday, even though it was actually made, the discovery was made, 
before the midterm elections. Funny how the news didn't break until a couple of months after the midterm election. Well, the news media must decide whether or not to hold up that hypocrisy by Joe Biden and his team of Democrats. Now, I'll remind you, last August, a team of 20 FBI agents armed with machine guns raided Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. In fact, the FBI indicated we waited till Donald Trump left town because we didn't want to make it a big deal. Now, after that, news stories speculated broadly that the documents seized there included national security threats to America, nuclear secrets, everything in the world except maybe a map to Jimmy Hoffa's body. How dare he keep those classified documents, declared both Joe Biden and a whole bunch of left-wing pundits. Now, few of them mention that presidents have an almost unlimited authority to declassify documents. So even if a document is marked top secret, as some of those found in Joe Biden's locked closet in his think tank and announced yesterday, yeah, presidents can declassify those documents. Vice presidents, not so nearly much. Biden was vice president when he took home his treasure trove of classified documents years ago during the Obama administration. Did Joe steal nuclear secrets or papers that put America's national security at risk? Nobody's saying right now. And no word of any plans by the FBI to stage armed raids on the three very nice homes that Joe Biden has bought with all that Chinese communist cash. But unlike Donald Trump, Joe's going to be judged by an executive branch of government that is firmly under Joe Biden's control. Not to mention a lapdog media usually happy to carry water for him every single day of the week. Now, let me mention this to you. Since the story broke late yesterday, here's what we've learned. Some of the documents were labeled top secret, which is the highest level of government classification. Now, President Obama could have declassified those. Joe Biden did not have that authority. And you will remember that after the raid at Mar-a-Lago way back last summer, there were people saying, well, Donald Trump should be charged, not because the documents were classified, but because holding on to documents that are the property of the federal government is technically a violation of the law. Now, most former presidents hang on to some documents, and this is really the first time in modern American history that the issue has ever been raised. But what were in those documents that were found in Joe Biden's think tank? They were cleaning out a closet, a locked closet in Washington, D.C. at this supposed think tank. I always think of these think tanks and some of the foundations like the Clinton Foundation. They're a convenient way to launder money. They're a convenient way to pay off your political allies and the like. And we know that many people have done that. Donald Trump doesn't have a foundation. Donald Trump doesn't have a think tank. Well, among the things from Joe Biden's time as vice president that were discovered in that private office and discovered days before last fall's election are 10 classified documents, including U.S. intelligence memos and briefing materials. And I want you to listen closely to this that covered topics, including Iran, the United Kingdom, one of our allies, and Ukraine. Now, do you think most Americans could have picked out Ukraine on a map during the Obama administration? I'd venture to say most could not. Why was Ukraine especially significant? Well, let me remind you of something else. Ukraine is that country where, yes, there's a war going on there now. Most people on the planet could pick it out on a map uh, more successfully than they could have about a decade ago. The documents were dated between 2013 
and 2016. 2016, right before Obama left, and America had the gift of a brand new president who actually ran this country right. But what was significant about Ukraine at the time? Oh, yeah, I remember Hunter Biden, the smartest guy, according to Joe Biden, the smartest guy he knows, was making literally millions of dollars for sitting on a Ukrainian natural gas company board of directors, even though he knew nothing at all about natural gas, didn't even know how to speak the language of the country, but he was getting paid four or five times as much money to sit on a Ukrainian natural gas board. By the way, the company is owned by a big billionaire oligarch, so he had the extra cash to pay for that influence he was buying with Joe Biden. And what kind of influence did he buy? Well, Joe Biden has actually told us since. He sat right there on camera in front of the Council on Foreign, or, uh, on Foreign Relations and bragged about the fact that Joe Biden told the Ukrainians, you want, this is back in the day, you want a billion-dollar loan guarantee for the United States. This is when Joe Biden was vice president. He said, you're not getting that billion dollars unless you fire that prosecutor. Which prosecutor? the Ukrainian prosecutor that was about to investigate the company that Joe Biden's son was sitting on the board of directors of, the one where his son was making millions of dollars, presumably with a at least a percentage set aside for the big guy. Why would Joe Biden have hung on to classified documents involving Ukraine? And which issue came up that was the first issue that Donald Trump was impeached for? Remember, there were two impeachments. The first one had to do with a phone call to Ukraine in which Donald Trump mentioned to the head of Ukraine, by the way, I think some Americans are involved in some, well, felonious activities, some sleazy activities in Ukraine. I'd like you to look into them. What was Joe Biden asking for? He wasn't just asking. He was threatening. He said, if you don't fire that prosecutor who's about to look into Burisma, the company where my son is making big dollars as a board of directors member, then I'm going to cut off the billion dollars to Ukraine. That's why Joe might have been interested in Ukraine. And I hope, I hope the Biden DOJ takes a hard look at this. Although, i got to be honest, I'm not going to hold my breath. Glad to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network. Always glad to take your calls. Coming up in a moment, I'll tell you about the ticking time bomb that is about to go off in a few months in the state of Washington. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. Well, the clock ticks down to a deadline coming in less than six months when a brand new narcotics bomb I'm going to call it a narcotics bomb, goes off in Washington state. Oregon and Washington have become the only places in America where hard drugs that kill more than 100,000 people nationwide every year have de facto legalization. Oregon did it through a citizen vote, Measure 110, based on some crazy promises that have never actually materialized. They said, why, we'll just talk people into taking treatment and we'll put up hundreds of millions of dollars to afford the kind of treatment they need. Well, for the most part, the drug addicts are not volunteering for it. Washington did it through a Supreme Court decision that wiped out the state's felony narcotics law. And a Democrat-controlled legislature and governor 
are so pro-drugs, that's Jay Inslee and company, that they would only make possession a low-level misdemeanor. So what's the time bomb? Well, the state's current misdemeanor drug possession law simply goes out of existence in July of this year. And then heroin and fentanyl possession will not be a crime at all. Maybe the first state in America with full-on legalization. Oregon only has de facto legalization. Now, the Pierce County prosecutor, Mary Robnett, says that the replacement drug law has led to no prosecutions at all. And here's why. Because the misdemeanor law that was passed as the replacement for a felony law, you can see the problem right there. Well, the fact is, the law says you can break the law twice before prosecutors are allowed to prosecute you on your third violation of the law. Yeah, guess what? There's no system to track the arrest the first two times. So there's no way to find out when a drug criminal can be prosecuted. So according to the Pierce County prosecutor, there haven't been any prosecutions in the last year at all. As Rob Nett puts it, in our experience, it's a felony charge that is really the leverage needed to get people to consider treatment as an option. Oregon's found out the same thing, by the way. Rob Nett goes on, we have found that amending felony charges so that people can get into drug court or dismissing felony charges or agreeing to vacate felony convictions, all of those are good tools to get people into treatment, except they don't have those tools anymore because the courts did away with it and the legislature refused to replace it. And guess what? Lawmakers in Olympia right now seem uninclined to take action that prosecutors say is needed. They want to make the drug crime, they'll move it from misdemeanor to gross misdemeanor. That's grotesque all by itself. They might even, and this is being considered in Olympia right now, decriminalize the drugs altogether and treat possession as a public health matter. In other words, they're lining up a disaster. July is when the misdemeanor law simply goes away unless the legislature takes action, and that is going to be a disaster if it doesn't happen. By the way, welcome to Tuesday. Glad to get your phone calls. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll today, well, I got to tell you something. We try to come up with a good question every day. Should Northwest drivers be forced to pay a per mile tax on top of all the other taxes you you, you have to pay related to driving. House Bill 2026, adding a per mile tax to Washington drivers, despite yet another budget surplus and a weak economy, Democrats are seeking ways to take even more of your hard-earned money, and they will likely introduce the bill proposing a two and a half cent tax on every single mile you drive in the state. In other words, you spend all that money to build all those highways and all those freeways and all those bridges, and now your government is going to punish you two and a half cents for every single mile you drive on the bridges and the highways that you paid to have built. Now, if that makes sense to anybody, I'd be glad to take that naysayer call. Uh, the question of the day, though, comes in from George, who says, Lars, we live on a tree farm, and we use the wood from it to heat our home. It works very well, even when the power goes out. But even with a fancy catalytic converter our stove has, it gives off far, far greater emissions than a natural gas stove would, though not nearly as much as Queen Brownout's forest fires did. The only argument I've heard is that wood is natural. That implies that natural gas is synthetic and therefore man-made, and so are the dinosaurs that the freely available gas comes from. Makes no sense to me. But like you always say, if Democrats don't have double standards, they'd have no standards at all, signed George in Washington. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? 
Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Presented by Rogue Conveyors. Go Rogue. Well, Oregon's brand new Democrat governor took the oath of office yesterday. She announced, this is Tina Kotek, that she will declare a homeless state of emergency and sign an executive order to increase housing construction on her first full day in office. She also proposed a $130 million emergency investment to help unsheltered people move off the streets. Now, if you assume that she might actually accomplish the task of getting, say, 1,300 people off the streets, it's going to come at a price tag of $100,000 each. If you double the number of people getting off the streets, say 2,600 people are actually removed from the streets, not living in a tent or a cardboard box and shooting their heroin, why then the cost is still about $50,000 each. And I want you to consider fifty grand is about the same amount of money after taxes that the average family working and contributing and paying their taxes, the average family lives on about a 50 grand a year and they support four people with it. And Tina Kotek is gonna spend 50 grand or 100 grand per person to get homeless drug addicts off the streets. Doesn't sound like a bargain to me. Now, today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators, TheMEIGroup.com. Mike Smith writes in from Snoqualmie, Washington. Lars, we just finished building a brand new home about a mile north of Snoqualmie Falls. We filed for permits at the start of February 2020, got the permit over a year later. It seemed the permit advanced only after I called and emailed the permit reviewer about the status. Otherwise, the permit just sat in the box. A summary of the costs are below. Permits, including building and stormwater, 26 grand, 10,000 for school impact, septic design costs, 5,200, site plan, 27,651, a well pump, 9,318, total before any construction begins, $68,940. There was already a well on the property, so we didn't have to do that. The water table is about 350 feet below ground level. Add another ten to 20000 for a well. Mike had heard our discussion of the fact that you constantly hear people in government bemoaning the fact that there isn't enough housing being built and that it's not affordable. And I mentioned that the average cost of building, say, in the city of Portland, as an example, Washington State sounds like it's almost as bad, $100,000 in permits and system development charges before you turn over a single shovel full of dirt. Now, if that tells you why it's expensive, that and things like urban growth boundaries that artificially make land more expensive than it should be, yeah, that's why housing's expensive. Government says it's going to fix housing that's too expensive, and government is the thing that makes it too expensive. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk about a mediation expert for an anti-political violence group. That's coming up next. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get back to your phone calls and emails, including a naysayer call or two. If you want to dial in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers go to the head of the line. And I'm really interested in talking to Ryan Nakade who bills himself as a mediation expert for an anti-political violence group funded by Homeland Security. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hey, Elias. Thank you so much for having me on. 
I'm really curious about this because I don't necessarily trust Homeland Security. It's run by a guy that I think ought to be impeached, uh, Mayorkas. And I know you can't say anything bad about him, but tell me what this group is, Cure PDX, that bills itself as an anti-political violence group and what you're doing toward that end. Sure, yeah. Well, first, let me acknowledge, I, I totally uh, understand your, your concern or distrust. <clears throat> it is something we hear about a lot and certainly understand. So the project is funded by a 2021 grant from DHS's new office called CP3, which stands for Center for Prevention, Programs, and Partnerships. And it's about stopping people from radicalizing to political violence and stopping people from committing violence by reaching out to what we call credible messengers. And these are people in their respective communities who have the trust and relationships built with their respective community members. And through those relationships can help to de-escalate people from committing political violence and kind of generally simmering down tensions and also kind of stopping the kind of hyper-polarized, um, hyper-partisan uh, divide going on in the country and kind of de-escalating things in the respective communities. So we probably don't have uh, credibility or authority with a lot of these communities that might be inclined towards violence, but we can find people who do have those relationships and through those partnerships can help to kind of bring tensions down a little bit. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, is I'm curious. Is it possible, even though this is money coming from the federal government, is it possible to actually apply this attention uh, to both groups like, say, Antifa, as well as conservative groups? Because I see a tremendous opportunity here, uh, not a good one, but an opportunity for people to say, yeah, let's go after all those conservative groups, you know, the evil folks at the Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer. And uh, and we'll kind of give a, a, a wink and a nod to Antifa. Should we be concerned about that? Yeah, great question. I love having this discussion. And I think what you're touching on is what I what I kind of think of as kind of political or ideological biases, which a lot of people have concerns about. And I, I totally understand those concerns, uh, especially concerns from the kind of conservative community about um, groups that might be government affiliated or doing bridging kind of work who have those who have those concerns. And so um, given that that is kind of reflective of the general the landscape um, of attitudes towards government or programs like this, uh, I, I personally, um, we are, you know, I'm very adamant that um, about reaching out to all sides and, and making sure that it's a balanced approach. We are, we are not a explicitly you know, partisan or uh, political group. We are just against violence and political violence across the board. And so that's how we, that is our intention of trying to apply that framework. Uh, we don't try to change people's beliefs. We're just concerned with stopping people from acting and beha- behaving violently or inciting other people to violence. Okay. And, and see, I understand that. But, Ryan, here's the concern I've got. Uh, there's a point where you can be a very vocal activist. I mean, you can stand up, you can give speeches, you can do all that. And all of that is not only good. Political act. There's nothing wrong with political activism, even if I don't agree with the activism that's being voiced. But then there's a point where somebody tips over and says, "I'm going to go from speeches and and vo- you know and, and communication to where I'm going to go out and hurt people. I'm going to I'm going to plant a bomb. I'm going to put a bullet in somebody's head." Now, Antifa and members of Antifa have actually done that, and they've seen a, apparently very little attention from from law enforcement and from the uh, you know the powers that be. You know, but but people who stand up and shout too loudly, say at school board meetings, all of a sudden get a memo from the attorney general saying you folks are domestic terrorists. How do you how do you stop short and you only focus on people who might be violent, but not on those people who are just being loud and activist, which is constitutionally protected speech? 
Yeah, great question. So that that's another thing that was very important to us on this project is that we're not uh, law enforcement based. So so you're talking about what you're saying uh, as it sounds to me kind of like unfair. Uh, applications of law enforcement. So we don't actually work with law enforcement. We're a totally grassroots, community-based approach that just is about reaching out to um, people in these different circles or in these different networks. Maybe not necessarily people who are inclined towards violence themselves, right, but people who might have some kind of meaningful relationship with people in a group that might be inclined towards violence, and kind of giving them resources and skills to de-escalate and to get people to think otherwise about doing something like putting a, a bull in someone's head, as you're saying. So, um, yeah, we don't, we don't work with law enforcement. We're just about getting people to not escalate towards violence. So what do you do? How do you, how do you approach a group and say, look, we, we, we're not going to get in the way of your uh, you know, freedom of assembly, freedom of right to petition your government for redress of grievances, free speech, uh, giving speeches, having marches, having rallies. But we want you to, how do you, how do you get to that point where you say, I'm going to stop you, but we want you to stop short of actually hurting people or, or breaking things. Yeah, so the first thing is making, uh, kind of reaching out to different groups and trying to align interests. So each group, whether on left or right, has, has usually has some interest or intrinsic incentive to kind of stop violence or de-escalate violence in the community, right? It could be a general concern for the community. It could be because they don't want their uh, people... On, in their group to be hurt. It could be because it would make the movement look bad, whatever it is. So kind of seeing, kind of uh, gauging the incentive landscape and seeing where we could kind of align our interests. And then we can look at exploring a more formal partnership. And that includes maybe coming to some workshops. Uh, we love uh, hearing from the community, too. So if people have experiences, perspectives on the ground, witnessing violence, witnessing radicalization, these kind of things. We love hearing from everyone of every side. It's really important that we get the community's input in all of these perspectives that inform my work. And then finding out how we can collaborate with equipping people with skills and resources and uh, coaching, whatever it is, to help them simmer down tensions in their respective communities. Do you have any examples that you can brag on as saying this is one where it worked? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. So we're actually, this phase of our project is really the outreach phase that we're really kind of ramping up now. Um, so there are there are some remarkable stories with uh, different people on our team. Uh, I'll just give you one. My uh, one of my colleagues is with an organization that's uh, one of the nonprofits that's spearheading this project called Parallel Networks, and uh, he's actually a former right wing extremist, and he works with uh, the uh, uh, president of Black Lives Matter in Flint. And they had an experience at a protest event where there were, uh, I think, a Black Lives Matter group and a, a, a conservative group that were getting a little heated during a protest event. And they were able to talk. They were able to kind of calm things down. They had both sides of guns. They were able to put down the guns. They were able to shake hands, even give hugs and kind of have some decent conversations in a very heated protest environment. And so that was a very powerful story that really stuck with me, and, and we're looking to recreate more of those types of experiences so that people don't actually get hurt when exercising their rights for free speech and so forth. See, because I think one place you could do some good, there are groups, mm. uh, especially here in the Northwest, who want to show up and say, have a rally. Patriot Prayer is one of those. But if Antifa shows up, they want to create a fight. And if they never show up, Patriot Prayer has its rally, puts up the flag, maybe says a prayer, sings a couple of songs, and they go home. But if they're attacked, they will fight back. And you don't mind, you won't, you won't mind endorsing the idea that if you're attacked as an American, physically attacked, you have the right to fight back, right? Yeah, well, practically, I think there, there's two ways you can, you can think about it. Um, one, one is, if there is an opportunity for escalation, then 
what some team members have done before is reaching out to different groups and just saying, trying to discourage them from not showing up. Right. Oh, now, hold on, hold on. Now, Ryan, this is where you're going to get, well, I'm inclined to have you stick for another segment because I think this is where the pinch point comes. And I'll explain what I mean by that because, because I don't think you'd apply it to both sides. But will you stick around for another segment? Oh, sure. Okay. Ryan Nakati is with me. He's a mediation expert for what is billed as an anti-political violence organization that is funded by Homeland Security. We'll be back in just a moment. It's the Radio Northwest Network. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, too. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I ask Ryan Nakate to stick around for a moment. He's a mediation expert for an anti, it's billed as an anti-political violence group called Cure PDX. It is a project that is funded by Homeland Security, which, as I told Ryan, makes me suspicious right out of the gate. Ryan, I told you we got to a pinch point, and I want to make sure I heard you correctly. So you've got one group that shows up to do a rally, to do some other kind of politically protected speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, right to petition your government for redress of grievances. But other groups say, if they show up, we're going to show up and we're going to provoke a fight and there's going to be violence. Your suggestion, just so I heard you correctly, is the first group, the one that was just showing up to have a rally, they should stay home, right? Yeah, yeah, no, sorry, I, I might have uh, miss, uh, uh, didn't explain that well. So in, in certain situations, they could, in that could be a violent escalation. Um, we would just, we would try to make sure that if, if people do go up and, you know, as you said, express their right to, for free speech and protesting and so forth, that uh, what are some techniques we can use in the moment to de-escalate people from uh, escalating tensions further when you're both at the event? No, no, no. But so, didn't, so you, didn't you say we might suggest one group just not show up? Uh, in, in certain situations, there were some, um, like, people would be kind of like, uh, like warned or like cautious, like not to show up. But we, we, don't, we ourselves don't tell them to show up or not show up. That's not what we would do. We would let the respective communities make that decision uh, based on their local knowledge of escalatory risks. Okay, but, but how do you deal with the fact that one group, you know, Antifa, when they've showed up, they've had riots with nobody else there. It, it, there's always a riot when Antifa shows up. When Patriot Prayer has shown up at events and not been challenged, not been physically attacked, there's no problem. And yet there's always a problem with Antifa, to use two real-world examples. So which group do you tell to stay home? Oh, I mean, that, that wouldn't be, again, that wouldn't be our job to tell anyone to stay home. It would be if the, if the people that we reached out to who um, are interested in de-escalation and preventing violence, they'll make that decision based on their kind of knowledge of the situation that I probably don't have. So it's kind well, of a but decentralized... Then how do you de-escalate if you've got two groups that mix like oil and water and one of them is bound and determined to have a fight if they show up? And even if nobody else shows up, they show up and have a fight amongst themselves. And I've seen Antifa do that. Uh, but, but, but Patriot Prayer shows up and says, as long as nobody attacks us, we don't have to fight back. So how do you de-escalate that? Because that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is a very challenging, very challenging situation, obviously. Uh, we do have some workshops that kind of go into some of the skills and practices. We have an active bystander training that kind of gets into some of these methods. And uh, Cure Violence Global, the, one of the nonprofits that is spearheading this initiative, they have a whole list of different techniques. Um, and there are other expert trainers on the team who are more knowledgeable about myself in this, but there are different ways of, like, 
you know, distracting people, different ways of knowing when to leave, these kind of things that, again, I don't have the credibility or influence to be able to get through, let's say, to an Antifa uh, about what to do or what not to do in terms of violence. But hopefully we can find people who, who can have the uh, authority and trust with them to have some influence in a positive uh, now, hold on. Do you Do you really think that's even possible, Ryan? Be honest with me. You think you can talk Antifa into not attacking people? Because I've never seen that happen. Unless I, I, I have seen it. Ha- I, I, let me let me reframe that. I have seen that happen when Antifa shows up at a small northwest community and they're immediately surrounded by law abiding local people in the community who outnumber them and may be bigger than them. And all of a sudden Antifa decides to leave. The only time they leave is when they realize we're about to get pounded into the ground. So they leave and there is there's no violence because Antifa runs away. But if they are even equal to the group that they face they attack. So what do you do with a group like that that just rolls around creating problems wherever they go? Yeah, I hear your, uh, the game, game theoretic arguments for uh, what you just said. So ideally, the, it's all about, we have a joke on finding the unicorn. So it's someone who, again, I don't have any relationship or credibility with Antifa, for example. But uh, again, it's about reaching out to different, uh, different uh, parts of their network that might not be people who are directly in Antifa, but still have a positive relationship with some of the members. So it doesn't have and to be And you think they can talk Antifa out, out of its nature, natural inherent violence? It could be talking to members who identify with Antifa. So people like husbands, wives, uh, employers, spiritual faith leaders, other members of the community who have a positive relationship with that individual, who can help the individuals to de-escalate um, you know, think differently about acting violently, leave in a certain situation. So not necessarily just not changing the group or their ideological agenda, since that's not our goal, and I imagine that'd be very difficult, but more on a personal, person-to-person level, right? Using your respect See, and authority to help people make a better decision. Because, Ryan, the leave part of it is what troubles me. I hear people say all the time, well, why doesn't Patriot Prayer just go home? Why don't they just not show up? Which I say to them, would you have told Martin Luther King, hey, every time you go to Selma, there's trouble. Why don't you just stay home? Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. We're, we're, we're not telling anyone to, to leave or to just stay home and not express their rights. So just to get that clear. Okay, because it, do, it doesn't sound like it's going to solve the thorniest of the problems, and those are the ones that the public wants solved. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, a very, it's a very Sisyphean task, and we also have a huge geographic scope we're going to try to cover. But, you know, Lars, I, I uh, haven't been at this for too long. Uh, you know, my, as you said, my background's in mediation and... My, my real, where my heart is at is, is tending to the political divide in this country, and I feel like I have to try. You know, I might fail, but I just have to try because I really care about this country. The divide really saddens me, and so, uh, you know, succeed or fail, I just, I just, this is my civic duty. Okay. Uh, it's what I have to try to do. Ryan, I appreciate the time. That's Ryan Nakati, who's with an anti-political violence group funded by your Homeland Security tax dollars. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer? They're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. 
that's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your phone calls and emails. It's a Tuesday. It is the Radio Northwest Network, and we're proud to serve the Pacific Northwest with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. We've got a Twitter poll you might want to answer. You'll find that at Show and at LarsLarson.com. Well, you've heard about the storms that have been happening, snowstorms in the east, and now water, <laughs> too much of it, on the west coast of America. And I thought we'd talk to our friend, the meteorologist, former airline pilot, still flies. Chuck Weiss joins us now. Chuck, how are you? Very good, Lars. Now, Very you know good. you know that all the mainstream media is going to say, well, if it's bad weather, uh, anything other than completely pleasant weather, it has to be caused by climate change. And now we've got these big storms that are hitting the entire West Coast, and we've got some fierce flooding. And in fact, we have some people who sadly have died uh, because of that flooding. And I wanted to know what, what your take is on all this and try and set it in context for people, because you know that the folks in the major media are going to say, see, this is proof that climate change is coming at us and we have to change the way we do business. Well, Lars, the, uh, the narrative by mainstream media and the alarmists is uh, completely false. It's, it's a lie. Uh, the uh, storms in California could not be happening if we had the CO2 warming hypothesis being validated. Because if the planet is warming, and especially at a very high rate in the Arctic, the jet stream displacement would not be able to reach latitudes that are affecting Southern California. And what's causing this uh, very uh, heavy rainfall situation and strong winds in California is exactly that. It's the displacement of the normal position of the winter jet stream because you have two sources of extreme bitter cold coming off the Siberian continent into the Pacific Ocean, one uh, in eastern Siberia going down off the Aleutian Islands, and the other is feeding into uh, uh, cold air into the Sea of Japan from off the Kamchatka Peninsula. And it's bitterly cold up there. I looked at some of those stations in Siberia this morning, and the temperatures up there, uh, the coldest one I saw was 65 degrees below zero. Wow. And so that cold air feeds out over the warmer Pacific Ocean, and as it does that, it creates these storms that are uh, then developed by a, a very strong jet stream. And by the way, if the jet stream gets this place further south, the intensity of the storms increase, as, as does the, the speed of the jet stream. And that's because of the rotation of the Earth and the weakening Coriolis force as you go further south. So these storms generate, and then they head towards the California one after another, and we just get the northern fringe of that. The other way this cold air reaches us is what it did last month. Another one of these bitterly cold air masses uh, in the December event that we had, instead of feeding cold air out over the water like it's doing now, it came out uh, and down through the continents and affected Canada and almost the entire United States. And in that one, we just got the far western fringe, while the rest of it buried uh, the entire Midwestern and East Coast with extreme cold. And, of course, it generated some snowstorms off the eastern slopes of the Rockies as well. 
So usually in the wintertime you get, it's either the cold air coming down through the continent like it did last month or what it's doing now. But what makes this so, uh, as a standout to this, this phony theory of climate change by CO2 is the displacement of the jet stream. That can't happen if you don't have an adequate supply of cold air. And the CO2 warming hypothesis requires the, the cold air at high latitudes be weakened or end up being warmer. If that's the case, the jet stream cannot, by the laws of physics, get to these sorts of latitudes that it's doing now. And boy, have they had rain down there in California. I looked at some of the 24-hour totals, and up in the hills, uh, just east of Los Angeles, some areas up there have had over 11 inches of rain. So it's not so surprising that the ground is very saturated there by these storms. And we're not done with them. There's more of them out there, and so far the jet stream is still going to be directing a lot of this at California. So we can expect for the next week, off and on, more storm activity, more heavy rains, and a lot of those places down there are already close to 100% of their seasonal average for the whole winter, and we're not even through halfway through winter yet. So it's, you know, uh, it's, it's typical of, of, of what happens. One of the frustrations for me is I see all this rain, and I think of it as opportunity. Because rain means irrigation, it means transportation, it means power generation, except you got to hang on to it. And I saw even the front page of the L.A. Times earlier this week said, gee, why can't we hang on to this? I mean, even a news, one of these left-wing newspapers saying, gee, if we, if we held on to this water, why it would take us through the dry, dry periods. And that was on the front page of the L.A. Times. Yeah, water storage could definitely be part of a solution to drier years. And you're going to get a mix of both of these. When the climate naturally swings back and forth from the, and pivots from its uh, equilibrium like it does constantly, you're going to get some years where they don't get a lot of rain down there. And the ocean cycles, which typically oscillate every 30 years, change these patterns enormously. And we, when we were in the warm phase of the PDO, it often meant that California is going to be short of rainfall. Uh, just like we are in the, uh, like, like we can be during those years with our snowpack and the Cascades, uh, during an El Nino and warm phase PDO. But it's opposite of that now. It's cold phase and you've got the, uh, uh the jet stream now and uh, cold air masses at high latitude, uh, developing a lot more strength because of those ocean cycles. And that creates the patterns that we're seeing right now that generate these storms. And so the rest of the winter, I, I, we're going to see a lot of this. And we may get uh, back to the, uh, the situation where we get more cold air coming down through the continents. We're not done with winter, so we could get that next month. I don't know for sure. Right now, we're in the mode of the storms being fed by these uh, petrol cold air off of Siberia. And uh, until that changes, we'll just keep seeing more of these. So Chuck, it's, uh, it's a very stormy pattern, and it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. So, Chuck, what are, the, what are the folks who are true believers of climate change and global warming? What do they say when you say, look, if you've got warming up in the Arctic, uh, you can't get this displacement of the jet stream, which means the warming you've said is going to happen isn't happening. How do they answer that? Because that seems like a good, solid criticism of this whole theory that we've got general overall warming and that it's causing climate chaos. Well, the, the thing that they can't prove, they have no proof whatsoever that the radiative balance due to CO2 has actually changed to where that was the cause of any of this warming in the Arctic. It has warmed faster up there than it has in the, in the rest of, of the world, but uh, that's related to these ocean cycles. That's what it seems to be uh, pointing to, and there's no evidence at all that this, this is being caused by uh, the CO2, because if that was true, you wouldn't be able to get the cold air uh, at uh, enough intensity to where it could feed south and maintain its strength and develop uh, storms at more southerly latitudes. That would just be physically impossible. 
So uh, we don't have all the answers as to what causes all the warming and cooling on the Earth, but the CO2 warming hypothesis is falsified. And years ago, when all of this work was laid out in atmospheric science, we knew back then that CO2 cannot control the Earth's temperature. It's, it's dwarfed by the hydrological cycle and all the water on the planet. And, and uh, that cannot change. It's not going to change. And they've done nothing since that time to prove that their theory is true other than invent these failed climate models, which cannot do what they're, they're claimed that they can do. The uh, people who invented them are overstating their predictive ability. And it's just a tragedy that we're relying on public policy now uh, based upon those failed models. We're- Absolutely right. That's Chuck Weiss, our friend, the meteorologist, talking about what is happening right now and what the climate models are predicting. Coming up in a moment, a brand new and big deal revelation about what happened on January 6, 2021. Unit 6, I got a crowd fighting with officers, pushing, going projectiles. I have given warnings about chemical munitions. I need the less than lethal team positioned above me to identify the agitators and start deploying. Launch, launch. Now, that is one of the police, the Capitol Police uh, in Washington, D.C., back on January 1st, 2020. Sorry, January 6th, 2021. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. There's been a new piece of information come out, believe it or not, now more than two years after that incident happened in Washington, D.C. And I want to tell you about that new information. It comes from a former U.S. Capitol Police commander talking about the ways that the January 6th response, not about the January 6th riot, but about the response to it and about how it failed. But let me get to that in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, you're always welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the front of the line at 866-439-5277. If you'd rather email, talk at LarsLarson.com. Doesn't get much easier than that. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, what happened on January 6th? Yes, there were some people who broke into the Capitol. Who did it and who actually inspired it to happen? I know plenty of people would like to blame the best president of the 21st century, Donald Trump. Uh, The FBI failed in trying to blame it on Donald Trump. The DOJ has failed in trying to blame it on Donald Trump. But uh, don't put it past the Democrats to keep trying on that. And in fact, uh, you've watched as the Department of Justice actually brought charges against some of the people involved in the incident on January 6th, two years ago. And uh, they didn't even try to make the case. Merrick Garland, the very political attorney general of America under Joe Biden, didn't even try to make the case that Donald Trump was the instigator, that Donald Trump was involved in the planning of what happened on January the 6th. As I keep reminding people, Trump gave a speech that day. You can read the speech. You can watch the speech on video. You won't find anything in it that suggests go up and break things and break into the U.S. Capitol. And in fact, that's why the FBI determined he had not been involved in instigating the riot or in planning the riot. And Merrick Garland also came to that conclusion, and they talked about it in court. So what's come out today? Well, here we are, uh, two days, sorry, two years and four days after what happened. A former U.S. Capitol Police commander has said that the Capitol Police failed that day. And I think there's a reason they failed, but let me tell you what's in the report from Epic Times. Um, there was a, there was a tape and I played part of it for you there a moment ago. It is, it is hours and hours long, 
but it's U.S. Capitol Police radio traffic that was obtained by Epic Times. I'll give them credit for the journalism on this. And it shows that when this Capitol Police commander, who's now retired, um, when this commander radioed in and said, we've got to start evacuating people from the Capitol building, he got no response whatsoever for as long as 20 minutes. Didn't get any kind of response. The delay caused by the radio silence from the Capitol Police Command Center from the Epic Times was so urgent that the 22-year veteran lieutenant located near the U.S. Senate chamber forged ahead with an evacuation anyway. He called in and asked his higher command, I need to evacuate these people. Give me a yes or no. He said he feared that lawmakers would be injured or killed if he didn't lead them to safety before the chamber doors were breached by the protesters. In fact, Epic Times makes the point that I made this point any number of times to you who listen to this program. Joe Biden has said that five cops died that day. Not a single cop died that day. There was one person killed during the January 6th incident. Her name was Ashley Babbitt. She was an Air Force veteran. She was one of the protesters. She was one of the people inside the building. Was she breaking the law? Sure. Did she deserve to be shot? Absolutely not. But Epic makes the point that if there had been a faster response to what happened that day, and there were warnings days, even weeks ahead of January 6th from the FBI to the Capitol Police saying there is trouble coming. And we now know, two years later, despite all the things we didn't learn from the very political January 6th committee, the one that was uh, really kind of a dog and pony show for Nancy Pelosi, because she forbade conservative Republicans to even be on the committee. They instead got the likes of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and, and folks like that. Go along, get along, rhino Republicans to be on the committee who wouldn't ask any hard questions, who wouldn't insist on answers from both points of view. The first time in U.S. congressional history, in history, in two, more than 200 years, the first time that they've ever had a committee made up by Congress that was not made up from both political parties. It was made up by the choices of one political party, the Democrats. And guess what they didn't determine? It didn't determine why was it that when Nancy Pelosi got an, and the Capitol Police got an explicit warning from the FBI days ahead of time, why did they not only not upgrade the security protections of the Capitol, they actually downgraded them. Now, they said in a series of exclusive interviews with Epic Times, Lieutenant Tariq Johnson, 47 years old, now retired, detailed allegations that Pittman, this is Assistant Chief Yogananda Pittman, who's now moved on to another well-paid job, that uh, all of those allegations that Tarek Johnson says, I called and called. He says, I begged for help all day on January 6, 2021, and I was largely ignored. I begged again. On January 6, 2023, two years later, for proper investigation entities to uncover what really happened on January 6th, and I pray that the country hears my cry. He says the crucial delay in the evacuations never should have happened. He said there was no response from anybody at the command center. I say even before I initiated the evacuation, I say specifically, we've got to start thinking about getting the people out before we don't have a chance to get them out. I heard no response. Then I asked for permission to evacuate. I heard no response. Now, what was going on that day? I will tell you what I think was going on that day. Nancy Pelosi had tried once to impeach and convict Donald Trump. 
Trump was impeached the first time and not convicted. He was acquitted. And she needed something as Donald Trump was going out the door two weeks after January 6th. He was leaving the presidency. But she needed to get something else because she had a political goal. And the goal was to make sure that Donald John Trump could never again run for public office. Now, she didn't get to that goal, but she, she needed an excuse. So when the FBI said there are groups, not groups that are affiliated with or connected to Donald Trump, but groups that plan to, raise, to cause trouble on January 6th. We didn't know what the trouble was going to be, but the FBI warned the Capitol Police. Nancy Pelosi, who is in charge of the Capitol Police, they answer to a committee that answers to Nancy Pelosi. She's the one on whose desk the buck stops. She not only did not upgrade the, the security for that day, she actually downgraded security on that day because she needed something to happen that day. Now, did she know that it was going to be what it turned out to be? Uh, a riot that actually went inside the building though, where doors were broken and windows were broken and property was damaged? No. But she knew that whatever it was, she was going to be able to use it as a predicate, an excuse for an unconstitutional impeachment of Donald Trump. And she did exactly that. It was so unconstitutional that the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who's named in the Constitution as the person to preside over such a trial in the Senate, he refused to even take part. In any case, just consider that new information. Glad to get your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get to your phone calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. There are so many things that both government institutions and pseudo-government institutions like the Fed do to affect the, uh, the marketplace that we all live inside of in the United States. And we're going to get some news this week about the consumer price index numbers for December when they come out. And they may well have a big effect on what the Fed does, on interest rates, on a whole bunch of other things, including the stock market. And I thought we'd bring on Veronique Desrougis, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center back at George Mason University. Veronique, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And Happy New Year to you, since I haven't talked to you since, uh, since the old year. Tell me what's yes, going on happy Thursday. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but um, one, one, thing, uh, one thing is, uh, is clear is that market actors are expecting um, good news. And it's, they're basically expecting that inflation, will, that the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, Will show uh, will have reduced, meaning that it it is going to be a sign and a signal that some of the inflation is getting under control. The problem is that we're still even even if that's the case, and and I don't know I don't know if it's the case, but uh, because uh, Jerome Powell, uh, the chairman of the Fed, is actually kind of being very elusive about it all um, in his recent um, talks, but. Um, but if that's the case, there will still be such a long way to go to get back to the target, to the to the inflation target of two percent. Yeah, back to two percent because the economists are saying, well, we kind of expect it's going to be about six point six percent, and they're going to call that good news, even though Veronique, I use exactly. the benchmark of January twenty twenty one. You know, when Joe Biden took office, yeah. we have been running at I think one point four, so six six 
is four hundred and almost four hundred and fifty percent of that. It's it's crazy when I when I hear I have to say, you know, uh, when I hear a lot of conservatives and 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 far left people. Um, demand that the Fed stop intervening and try to control inflation with higher interest rates. I'm kind of I'm I'm baffled because we are so far from having inflation under control that um, that I just don't know exactly what these people want. Okay, they don't want the consequence and the pain that comes from higher interest rates, right? Which right. makes uh, borrowing money uh, more expensive, uh, which uh, which uh, can create a recession, which is hurtful and could hurt, you know, increase unemployment for sure. Uh, but the, the the truth of the matter is, like, not doing this right now is only going to make it harder if inflation not only continues but also start growing going up again, precisely because people are expecting today that future inflation is going to stay high. Well, and the one thing you didn't mention, but I know you know about it, if we've got 6-6 inflation, it means the $100 you have today that has a certain amount of buying power, 12 months from now, will have about $93.5 of buying power. And then a year yeah. after that, if it keeps going, you'll be down to 87. And and it doesn't take long to turn that $100 of, of buying power into a whole lot less at that kind of rate. It's, it's hugely damaging to everybody's daily lives, isn't it? And you know what? Yes, at first it is. But one of the aspects that is very rarely discussed is the impact uh, it can have on uh, our debt and a potential uh, rollover crisis. So 30% of our debt is rolled over every single year. As a, it has a maturity, so that's about $6 trillion, Right, that Treasury has to roll over, basically pay back short-term investors, and yep. then borrow again um, on a one-year basis. If those guys borrow, like lending money to Treasury, and uh, and and know that in a year they're going to be paid back at um, at at with money that is devalued compared to the money that they're giving up today. They're going to be asking way higher interest rates, or is they simply going not going to lend money to um, to Treasury? So we could have, if this persists, and if inflation takes off even more, I mean, first it's going to have a real impact on um, on um, you know interest payments because with so much short-term uh, uh, debt, it means that basically when interest rates are going up. Uh, you you end up having more, higher interest payments, but on top of that, it could lead quicker to you know a nasty kind of a fiscal fiscal crisis um, that is going to be triggered by people investors, short term investors saying, you know what, why would I be paid uh, paid back with lesser money in a year? Yeah, they, they're going to demand higher. And by the way, just so people have an idea, because I don't hear reporters say this enough. I've looked up the number, and you tell me if I'm wrong. Right now, the United States is paying north of $1 billion a day. I think last year was two, uh, four, uh, $399 billion mm -hmm. just in interest costs. And as you said, that's yeah. at very low rates. If those rates go up much at all, even on a third of the debt, it goes from 399 to maybe half a trillion dollars a year that we're paying just in interest costs, some money that's been borrowed and already spent, right? Yes. 
Absolutely. Actually, so those, the Congressional Budget Office has a tool on its website where basically you can go and say, let's look at the impact on the deficit uh, if we change different um, factors. For instance, you say uh, above the baseline projected by CDO, right? They still, for instance, let's say that interest rates go up one percentage point by one percent above what uh, CBO is projected for the next 10 years, interest rates are going to be, and you end up with over a trillion to $2 trillion of additional interest payments. It goes really, really, really quickly. And what happens when those interest payments have to be made with borrowed money? That only fuel inflation. So I mean, this is, is think I mean, about this. Need, in- it just, yeah, we need to control inflation, the bottom line. <laughs> well, think about this in personal terms, Veronique. If you, I mean, we've all, some of us have had credit card problems in the past. But if you have a friend who's borrowed every dime they can borrow on their credit cards, and now they're, they're having a tough time making the payment. So they say, well, I'm going to get another credit card and borrow money on the new credit card to pay just the minimum payment on the old credit cards. You say to them, you are in real trouble. I mean, you are, you're headed for, you know, that's a, that's a circle the drain kind of moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And, you know, like a lot of the decisions that have been made the last 20 years have been made because of the assumption that low interest rates were there to stay, that the permanent state of, of America um, government finance is going to be dictated by low interest rate. If interest rates are low, why wouldn't you borrow a lot of money, right? And this never, like this notion that it was never going to go back up um, has been very prevalent and has always seemed extremely suspicious to me. And uh, and in fact, I mean, like interest rates have more than doubled uh, in the last, um, you know, in the last yeah. year, uh, yeah. more than doubled. Yeah. And and so and they're they're not going back to they're not going back to to the very low level, at least for a while. And no. if inflation is not. If they if they're not addressing inflation and they they are not addressing it, um, you know, aggressively, uh, unfortunately, there's so much, you know, kind of let's wait and see and all of that. Um, then you 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 risk um, making inflation just basically just, you know, set in the economy and as such uh, making our problems much worse and. and- Absolutely. That's Veronique DeRougie, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'd love to have a naysayer on that. 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I'll get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. I want to mention that this segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. And our Twitter poll question today, should Northwest drivers be forced to pay a per-mile tax on top of their gasoline taxes. Well, it was considered in the last legislative session in Washington state. It's been considered in Oregon. And of course, Oregon wants to add tolling on top of all that. And it's likely to be considered again. Can you imagine the folks in either Olympia or Salem or Boise saying to you, yes, you've already paid for the roads and the highways and the bridges with your gasoline and diesel taxes and your registration fees. And in Washington state, your car tab, uh, car tab fees as well. 
and now we're going to charge you two and a half cents a mile. So we're going to punish you every time you drive your car. Drive 100 miles? Well, you're going to have to spend two and a half dollars. What? Two and a half dollars drive? Why am I getting charged to drive on a road that I've already paid for? So I would say, no, Northwest drivers should not be forced to pay a per mile tax on top of their gas taxes. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Yesterday, I asked you this, should public schools blame social media? This is about the Seattle public schools filing a lawsuit against social media companies, including TikTok, but also including other social media companies. The public schools are trying to blame social media for the school's failure to educate students. I said no, so did 90% of you. 10% of you, though, said yes. And I'd love to talk to those naysayers and say, how do you figure? The public schools have been failing kids for longer than social media has existed. But then again, that's why we love naysayers. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Walter's on the line in Bellingham, listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Hey, Walter, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thank you so much for taking my call. Are you on a speakerphone by any chance, Walter, so you sound like you're coming from the bottom of your toilet? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm in a hallway, so forgive me. Oh, okay. All right. We uh, want people to hear your dulcet going in the cancer tone. center, so I only have a second. I, I just wanted to make one comment also. As we're trying to keep our buying power, we're also getting taxed on those increases, even though we're only maybe gaining 3% per year uh, in a 10% up market. So just wanted to add that comment to your last caller as well. That's a very good point, Walter. I mean, you've got inflation that outpaces wage increases, and then if you haven't invested and you actually make some money on that, then you're going to get taxed on that. And no, it's it's absolutely a very good point to make. Walter, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. Hey, I want to tell you about something. Now, there are some crazy ideas floating around out there, and apparently King County is getting behind one of the crazy ideas, or at least one member of the King County Council. That's Gene Cole's well, Cole Wells. And I'd love to talk to Councilmember Cole Wells because she says cashless business is a gentrification accelerator. Now, that takes a little explanation. She's concerned that there are a number of businesses in King County, especially in unincorporated King County, and uh, she's concerned that they don't want to take cash anymore. Do you understand why many of them have moved away from taking cash, not the pot shops, because they've still got a problem with federal law, They're moving away from taking cash because they keep getting robbed. And they keep getting robbed because the police have been defunded, because the prosecutors have diminished the number of people they're prosecuting. And so when a business says, hey, if we keep getting ripped off, because when we take cash, we have cash on the premises and we get robbed and we can't afford it. So they say, let's just go to digital transactions only. I don't like that either. But I understand why the business owners are doing that. Well, now she represents King County District 4, which includes parts of North Seattle and downtown Seattle. She has introduced legislation at the county level that would require businesses in unincorporated King County to take cash. Because she says when you when you only take those cards, you're going to discriminate against those people, is, is the theory, uh, the reason she calls it gentrification. She's suggesting that those people who don't have, say, con- conventional bank accounts are going to say, I don't have uh, a credit card. I don't have a debit card. I have cash. And she wants to force the businesses to take 
cash. Now, I'm as big a fan of cash as anybody. And yes, I understand the language on the bill that says this is legal tender for all debts, public and private. We all know that one. But I've had this conversation too many times with people. Can you force a business to say you must take cash? Try that with a car dealer. If you tell a car dealer, why, I want to buy a car uh, for $50,000, and I'm going to bring you a big bag full of cash. Most of them are not going to be thrilled, although they probably still sell you the car. Try doing a real estate transaction with just cash. Or get on an airplane. Most of the airlines, I think all of them now, have gone to cashless transactions. Why? Uh, because of losses, because of a lot of different reasons, they've gone to cashless. Now, am I crazy about that move? No. Do I think it's coming anyway? Yes. Do I think that government should say to a business, we're going to dictate to you how you're willing to take payment. We're going to force you to keep cash on the premises. Then we're going to defund the police, stop prosecuting criminals, stop locking people up, and those criminals can come and rob you of the cash that we force you to keep on the premises. If that makes sense to any of you, I would love to hear the argument. And don't get me wrong. I like cash transactions as well. But forcing a business saying you must pay the business, you must accept cash, and you must keep cash on the premises, I think that makes no sense whatsoever. Glad to be with you on this Tuesday. Always glad to take your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, Click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday and live on the Radio Northwest Network, which at least on a daily basis uh, tries to deliver honestly provocative talk for the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. That is our network territory. And I'm glad to have you with me as well. I'll get back to your phone calls here in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You can find the poll question yesterday we asked you about the seattle public schools suing social media saying it's social media's fault that we're not educating your kids even though the failure to educate kids has been going on for decades social media not so very long our twitter poll today should northwest drivers be forced to pay a per mile tax on top of all the other taxes that they pay Two and a half cents a mile, likely to be up in this year's legislature. I would say no to that. You can vote any way you like, at Lars Larson Show or at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, speaking of taxes, when you pay taxes, and I think almost all of us would agree that our taxes are too high and the government spends our money foolishly, should we at least, as citizens who pay taxes, have the opportunity to find out what they're spending the money on? I think one of the guys who agrees with that notion is Jason Mercier, who's director of the Center for Government Reform at the Washington Policy Center. Jason, welcome back. Lars, great to be on with you. Why is this such a novel new idea to say, hey, 
uh, you ought to tell the citizens what they're spending your money on. Most families, if they hand their son or daughter 50 bucks to cover some expenses at school and the kid comes home with nothing in his pocket, you might say, well, what'd you spend the money on? We should be able to do the same with government, shouldn't we? Well, as far as taxpayers concerned, it is not a novel idea, and it's something that we demand, expect, and deserve. And on the spending side, the state of Washington actually took some positive steps on this way back in 2008, and this was based upon a recommendation the Washington Policy Center made, and that was to create a searchable budget website. And this was partly because I was getting contacted all the time, not only from media and taxpayers, but also lawmakers trying to figure out where the state was spending money. And I was thinking to myself, well, let's let's put this all in one spot so anybody can go and search and get all that information. So the legislature actually passed unanimously this searchable budget website, which is fiscal.wa.gov. Well, that was back in 2008. At the same time, we were also encouraging lawmakers, great job, you've done it on the spending side, but now let's also resolve the mystery solving, resolving taxation. Let's create a tax transparency website. Well, here we are in 2023. It hasn't happened yet. But the good news is a bill was just introduced yesterday. It's Senate Bill 5158. And what's exciting about this is the sponsorship. It is sponsored by the chair and ranking member of the Senate Ways and Means Committee, a Republican wow. and a Democrat, which means this may actually move forward. And the beautiful thing about this is there are 1,800 taxing districts in the state of Washington. So your business, your home could be subject to 10 or more of these. As a taxpayer, it's really hard to see who's taxing me, how much, and what's that potential tax liability. And with this new website, if the legislature passes it and they get signed into law, you could just enter your business address, your home address. You would see all the taxing districts you're subject to, at which rates, and an educational calculator would be provided to kind of estimate your tax burden. Why does it have to be? I, I, I'm only going to ask, why do we have to order people, order agencies to do this, parts of government? Wouldn't you think the government would say this is going to be good customer service if we do this for the citizens? Well, I mean, that's when we thought back in 2008 when we told them, great job on the budget website. Now let's take the next step on the tax website. Now, there have been bills over the years. And in fact, the legislature actually put what's called a budget proviso into the budget requiring creation of this, but the uh, governor vetoed it. Uh, He was concerned it would cost too much. But here we are again. It's a brand new year. We've got bipartisan sponsorship. And I think that we just need to demand it as Washingtonians and as taxpayers. And and for that matter, it doesn't matter what state you're in. This should be in every state. Taxation should not be a mystery. You should be able to quickly see what your liability is, what your burden is, and who's responsible for it. Well, let me ask you about that, Jason. Should it have to be that expensive? Because I can imagine that on any big organization, including the state of Washington, state of Oregon would be in that list as well, that they already have people within that, uh, you know, within that organization who are already doing budget numbers for the other people in government. Is that fair to say? Well, the other thing that I think is, you know, this is 15 years after we first proposed this. Technology has improved. It should be a lot easier now to be able to get this data out to Washingtonians with the other databases that the state has. And one of the things that this bill would require is, again, you have 1,800 taxing districts. Now, what's a taxing district? The state is a taxing district, the county, the city, the school district, the transit district, the sewer district. You you get the idea here. And those rates and, and taxes change every year. 
So part of this bill would re- require those taxing districts each year to go back to the state of Washington and tell them what they're taxing and how much so that this can continually be updated to be a relevant resource. Is there any point to, say, consolidating some of those 1,800 taxing districts? Does that does that make sense? Because having 1,800 little entities that all engage in taxation, is that actually necessary? I mean, I... I mean, the only metaphor I could think of is if I walked into Fred Meyer or QFC and I said, well, I want to buy some groceries. And they said, what do you want to buy? I want to get some meat. Go to the meat department. They have their own cashier. And then you cash out there. And they said, what about produce? Well, that's got a different cashier. I mean, no business would organize themselves that way. They say you get all your groceries in a cart, go up front and you get, you know, you pay, you pay the bill all at once. Why in the world do we have 1,800 taxing districts? Yeah, it is an excellent governance question and a good debate to have, right? Do we need to have all these separate levels of government and separate tax authorities and separate budget authorities? And, you know, a bit of a side note on this, we're talking about taxing, the power of taxation. The lower and smaller these government authorities are, they've had a really hard time complying with audit requirements open government requirements, public records requirements. So sometimes a too specialized level of government kind of has a hard time complying with other type of good governance and transparency requirements. So that is a great debate to have is why do we need to have all these different layers of government? Well, I mean, uh, for example, if you took one county, Pierce County, and you said, okay, Pierce County is a bunch of water districts. We're going to, they can each charge a different amount. and, And that might not be a bad idea if one's more efficient than the other. But why do they have to, in other words, setting up the bureaucracy and the infrastructure to collect from these individual uh, tax people who owe taxes or, or fees, um, having each one of them have their own infrastructure sounds hugely expensive. Having it consolidated, at least within the county, uh, I, I would think would be, make more sense and probably end up being cheaper and better run and, as you point out, easier to audit. That is Jason Mercier. He's the director of the Center for Government Reform at the Washington Policy Center. Jason, it's a pleasure to be with you. When we get back, I want to get to your phone calls and emails, but you always hear people saying, why, we don't need oil and gasoline and diesel. We can make biofuels. I want to tell you about one of the biggest crash and burns right here in the Pacific Northwest involving a biofuels project that set the taxpayers back about a third of a billion dollars. I want to tell you something about these so-called biofuels that you always hear about. If you're talking to one of your friends and your friend is a greenie, you know, somebody who says, well, we've got to get rid of gasoline and diesel. We shouldn't be using oil at all, but we're going to replace them all with biofuels. You're not going to believe the story I'm going to tell you in just a moment. It is absolutely stunning what has gone on. A third of a billion dollars wasted, a giant pile of equipment and nothing good to show for it. But let me get to that in a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And I intend to get to a naysayer because we always put naysayers first in terms of callers. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the left wants biofuels. So if you want to email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. If you want to you know, you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you can find that at LarsLarsonShow or at LarsLarson.com. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past now 23 years. So 23 years of serving the Northwest. But about biofuels, I hear people say this all the time. They say, well, one of these days, 
we're going to fly in jets, but they're not going to be powered by a highly refined version of diesel fuel, which is what jet engines run on, highly refined diesel. Um, Now, we're going to fly on biofuels. It'll be made by algae, or it'll be made out of wood waste, or it'll be made out of some other magic that they've come up with. Well, I saw this story, and it's absolutely amazing. Because people want to talk about biofuels, renewable fuels, all the time. And I've always been skeptical of it. So I want you to consider this proposal. So somebody comes to you, and this is talking about a real plant and a real, not just proposal, they actually started to build this thing. And they want to take wood waste that America has in abundance. Almost every part of the United States of America has an abundance of wood waste and turn it into fuel for jet airplanes. You say, well, that's absolutely amazing. We should be able to do that. Well, it's fine to do it in a laboratory. But the second benefit of this would be if you take wood that otherwise is just going to be left to lay in forests on the ground and you get rid of it somehow. You know, the old-fashioned way is slash, slash piles, which, frankly, I don't have a problem with. Or you can wait a couple of decades for it to rot into the ground. Of course, you're going to be releasing methane the whole time, so you know the greenies could get excited about that as well. But this company, and the company is called Red Rock Biofuels, and they had this ingenious idea. Well, not that ingenious. The technology was actually developed about 100 years ago in Germany. Not during World War II, but, but right after World War I. In Germany, they figured out how to do this. Now, if you want to be a purist about it, you could say, well, hey, the moonshiners used to know how to do this. They could make ethanol all day long and twice on Sunday. All you had to have was an old boiler and a wood fire under the boiler and an abundant supply of wood, uh, load up the inside of the sealed boiler, and you cook off the ethanol and you make moonshine. Okay, fine. So the Germans got this going, but the problem is, Nobody has yet figured out how to scale this up. And that's usually the problem with a lot of technology is works in the lab. Doesn't work worth a darn when you try to take it to an industrial level. So how about adding in some support? You say, well, it just hasn't had enough support to get it going. Add in the support of one of America's most senior U.S. senators. He's a crazy Democrat, but Ron Wyden is one of the most senior members of the U.S. Senate. Now in the majority, I might point out. And then throw in about one-third of a billion taxpayer dollars. Almost everything put into this came from the taxpayers. A third of a billion dollars. Now, at that point, you might think, well, you can't possibly go wrong. You've got a technology invented 100 years ago. You've got the support of one of the top members of the United States Senate. You've got a third of a billion dollars paid by the taxpayers who don't get anything out of it. The Department of Defense threw in $75 million. Uh, There were tax-exempt economic development bonds at $300 million, bonds that, by the way, paid 6.5% to 10% interest tax-free. And you had the small towns where the plant was going to be built, another $2 million. Put all that together, and you would think that if the idea had any promise at all, it would be a roaring success. Guess what? Red Rock Biofuels is now in bankruptcy, Uh, not the company itself, but the, the site. They're going to have to probably part out the parts that they can sell to somebody who wants to buy the parts. It never got going. It never got scaled up. It never got, it got partially built, never got fully built. But when you hear people say, oh, biofuels, they're going to replace everything else. Wait until they actually have the technology ready for prime time. At this point, it is not there. If you want to build a nuclear plant, 
we got plans all over the place. And we have successful nuclear plants that have been built. You want to build an oil refinery? We've known how to do that for over 100 years. You want to build a natural gas-powered electric generating station? We know how to build those, too. Biofuels? Yeah, not so much. Doesn't quite work. In any case, to your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. Let's start with Scott. Hey, Scott, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind today? Thanks, Lars. I'm a first-time caller, and I have a disagreement with your cashless small businesses. Um, Number one, we should deal with the crime on its own, whatever we have to do to stop that. But I like to pay cash for small purchases so so that uh, I don't have a credit card for just, you know, buying a couple hamburgers. Then the third point was... I like to, you know, get my change and then kick a few bucks to my waiter or waitress. I'm a big tipper. And I think that that cash is going to help them supplement their, you know, minimum wage job. The only thing you haven't addressed is the point I was talking about where a government, in this case, King County, one of the members of the King County Council, has said they want to force businesses to take cash when the businesses have chosen not to take cash. So the essential question that I think you dodged Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just forgot. Should we force a business and say you must take cash, even if you choose uh, not to? Yeah, I'm, I, I misread that part of it. And no, you should not force them just for all the reasons I just stated. I mean, all I'm saying is that when, you know, we've got crime problems all over America, they've been accentuated in the last two years because you had the defund the police, then you had the George Soros prosecutors who don't prosecute, you got criminals that run around and they understand there's no bail, they get released right away after they're arrested, uh, and if they, if they get prosecuted, if they get convicted, they don't men- end up spending much time in prison. And frankly, during the pandemic, they started cutting prisoners loose. So the message we've sent to the criminal community is, go ahead and do it. There won't be much consequence. So they go out and rob places. And I could completely appreciate the point of view of a small business owner, man or woman, who says, look, I'm going to stop taking cash. If I don't have any cash here, uh, nobody can come in and stick me up for my digital transactions. You wouldn't take that away from a business owner, would you? No, I would not. I I think an answer might be we need to... We need to tighten up our elections and get some city council members in there that are going to do the right thing. I I couldn't agree with you more. The problem is the liberals, for whatever reason, have managed to convince people, vote for me and I'll defund your cops. Vote for me and crime will go up. Vote for me and we'll turn criminals loose and not prosecute them. And somehow those folks managed to get a majority of voters to vote for them. It makes no sense to me, but hey, You know, I I guess I just figure I'm conservative and they're not. And maybe they're listening too much to the mainstream, very liberal media. Scott, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the Pacific Northwest for the past nearly quarter of a century. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. If you want to dial into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. Email to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers go to the head of the line. And if you only want to just barely comment, you can certainly vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that online at Lars Larson Show with a brand new question every day or at LarsLarson.com if you're not a fan of Twitter. I've been telling you about Joe Biden's green energy plans. We already have seen gasoline prices go through the roof. 
and then Joe trying to buy them down artificially by releasing from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We've seen the plans for electric cars and forcing them on people. And now, just this week, uh, suggesting that we should ban people from having natural gas or even propane stoves in their homes. I thought I'd talk about, uh, talk about that with Donna Jackson, who serves as the director, uh, one of the directors at Project 21 Black Leadership Network. Donna, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. You actually, uh, you actually testified to Congress about about the bad effects of these green energy plans, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I have to applaud the committee. Um, I I uh, testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. We had uh, we had a roundtable on the cost of energy. You know, no matter how tough you think it is on the middle class, even harder on those that are struggling to reach the middle class. I mean, it's much worse than you think. And that those people are normally low-income and minority com- members of the minority community. Yeah, and because Joe Biden, it, you know... Go ahead, I'm sorry, ma'am. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, ma'am. You know, Joe Biden, you know, a lot of people say that um, he has a war on fossil fuel. He also has a war on the poor and minority communities. Sad to say he does. Do you think those members of Congress, all of whom make... You know, buck seventy-five for their congressional job, and most of them, I think, by the numbers, are millionaires. Do you think they actually appreciate uh, the real impact this has on people? Because I think most of them couldn't tell you how much money they paid for electricity or natural gas or anything else last month. I think that they didn't realize the impact that these climate change initiatives were really having on minority communities. But they got to understand them today. You know, to think that somebody in Detroit where the medium income is $2 a year is going to buy an electric vehicle. And that you, elect- you dropped out for a moment there, ma'am. What did you say? What was the, what was the median income in Detroit? $20,000. Ouch. A year. That's a middle class person making $20,000 a year is going to buy an electric vehicle. That's crazy to even think of it. And no, when the, the flat, average cost of, a, of an e-vehicle, I think, is 60 thousand dollars three years of your gross wages to buy an automobile, that, that isn't likely to happen. More than three years. And then the, here's the other thing that they weren't aware of. If you are participating in a government wealth transfer program, you know, like food, like, uh, food stamps, uh, aid to dependent children, whatever it is, the government puts a limit on the amount, the assets that you can own. That limit is very small, $3,000 in most cases. So your vehicle, your personal property, your bank accounts, your uh, retirement, account, retirement accounts can't, add up to more than $3,000 for you to stay eligible. I mean, on what planet are these people from that are making this, these rules that says, when you have the Biden administration say that, oh, if the price of gas is too high, go and get an electric vehicle, <laughs> uh, a electric vehicle. Why not tell them to buy a house? In, why not tell them to buy a yacht and a mansion? Because it's just as feasible. You know, well, 20 and, and- thousand dollars 20 
and and here's the crazy thing. When they tell people, oh, you can save money. I mean, the energy secretary, uh, Granholm, who comes out and says, oh, I, I drove right past the gas stations. Yeah, because you're driving a vehicle that got subsidized by the taxpayers and you've got the money to go out and buy it. But but many of the people who are your constituents, uh, you know, uh, in, in her case, everybody who uses energy in the United States, they can't afford to buy that electric vehicle. You're, again, you're speaking like somebody who makes $200,000 a year in a federal job. You know, when people say a new vehicle, that means different things to different people. In most minority communities, that means a car that costs about $2,500 or less. They can't imagine spending $20,000 or $5,000, let alone $65,000. They spend about $1,500 to $2,000 on a new car because it's new to them and they need the transportation they drive longer distance to go to the jobs because that's where all the good jobs are they have to drive longer distance to go to uh, get essentials like stores walmarts or whatever the case is and so they use more energy because they're driving further and their cars are older model cars so they're not getting the gas mileage that you would on a newer car so you know these people are so it just shows how disconnected they are to people live. I'm and talking to Donna Jackson, who's today. she's at the Project 21 Black Leadership Network. The other thing I wonder about is some states have already said, we're going to cut back on the number of gasoline cars we're going to allow to be sold in our states as soon as two years from now. Now, they're going to go to the absolute ban, some of those states, by 2035. But just two years from now, they want to cut that back. And I said to my producers, I said, can you imagine what happens to the cost of anything when it's in shorter supply? Well, the cost naturally goes up. So I think Americans prefer to buy gasoline and diesel cars because they fit their needs. So if you start crimping or throttling back the number of gasoline and diesel cars you can sell two years from now, that automatically means the cost of those cars is going to go up. You're going to walk onto the lot and say, I'd like to buy a pickup truck. And they say, well, we're only allowed this allocation this year because of the new green rules, you know, with e-cars coming. So uh, we don't have as many pickups to sell. And by the way, they cost more because they're in shorter supply. I mean, that's just a natural consequence of shortening up the supply, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. You know, gasoline is the cheapest form of I think we lost you for a second there, Donna. I don't know if it's the cell or the hours you, you were saying gasoline is a cheap, a cheap fuel that's easy to put in a tank. Uh, electricity, yeah, much more complicated. And what does it do to constituents that you have? You know, because you have a constituency. When you say, well, just charge up your car in your garage at your house. And the person says, I don't live in a house. I live in an apartment building. I'm on the third floor. How am I supposed to charge my car? And they don't have a garage, and they don't own their home. But, you know, it's ridiculous because even if they had a vehicle that expensive, they wouldn't be allowed to have it. I mean, it, 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 their, the Biden administration's message to minority communities is take the bus. That's their, 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 uh, uh, that's their message to minority communities. And it's not feasible to be able to have, be a single parent, pick up your kids, take them to the doctor, drive you know, 20, 30 miles out further than everybody else to get a job, come back. It's, what, they're, what they're doing is forcing people into poverty. They're forcing people into government dependency, and um, they're, they're taking away jobs 
where people want to be able to support themselves. So what they want is to enlarge the government. And in order to enlarge the government, you have to have a government-dependent permanent underclass. And that's what these Green New Deal initiatives are doing. I think you're absolutely right, Ms. Jackson. Thank you very much. That's Donna Jackson from the Project 21 Black Leadership Network. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get to your calls in just a moment, including a naysayer, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll, at Show. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. It is the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network brought to you by Valhalla Tea. You know, Valhalla Tea does so much to help veterans. Every bag sold helps a veteran. You just go to ValhallaTea.com. That's ValhallaTea.com. Our Twitter poll, should Northwest drivers be forced to pay a per-mile tax on top of all the other taxes you pay? Just one of the proposed ideas coming up at the upcoming legislative session, in that case, in Olympia. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Let's go to our first naysayer. Actually, we've had a couple today, but I, I love naysayers. You know I do. And they always go to the head of the line. Rowdy, what do you and I disagree about today? Hi, Lars. It's nice to meet you, and I've waited a long time to naysay with you because I agree with most of everything you say, but this time I think you're dead wrong. You were talking about earlier that we wasted a half a billion dollars on biofuels and trying to find a solution for our energy crisis, and we do have an energy crisis. There's more and more people, therefore they're burning more and more fuel, but that money's not necessarily wasted because I'm an inventor, and also my wife and I have a small company up here in Battleground, Washington, and I know as an inventor that you have to fail a lot. And in order to solve this problem, we are going to fail a lot. We're going to spend a lot of money. We're going to have to have the participation of our government and possibly others in, in the failure of trying to solve this problem. And we're not going to solve it until necessity steps in. And when necessity steps in, that'll be it's the mother of all inventions and all solutions. You know, I noticed you said necessity, not government bureaucracy is the mother of all inventions. Can you tell me one really great technology developed by a government bureaucracy? Hey, I totally agree with you on that. But well, well so oh, hold on. Uh, second question is this. If you can't, if you, while you're thinking of that, when you say you got to fail a lot, I have nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with failure. And in fact, something like 80% of all brand new startup businesses fail in the first three, or five, three to five years. And that's fine because it means the ones that succeed have figured out a product that they, they can make or sell, uh, produce or sell, and, and the right customer base and everything else. I get all that. But what happens when the failure comes not at your expense, but at the expense of people you don't even know? So this company that I was talking about earlier this hour, it wasn't half a billion, it was only a third of a billion dollars. It was only 300 million plus, and they wasted the taxpayers' money to build a plant for which they don't have the technology to make it work. So that third of a billion dollars came from your fellow American taxpayers, probably including you. Oh, right? I definitely agree. And I, I totally see your point on that. However, I also believe that it's going to be something like that type of event that's going to solve these problems. And without the government 
in there with their nose in it, regulating it, trying to set it all up. I mean, look, we both agree that the government isn't real efficient at this. Well, not, not only not efficient. No, no, no. Forget about efficiency. I, I know they're not efficient. Is the government innovative? And if so, can you name me a clever innovation that the government has come up with? Uh, I can name no, you about 50 examples where the government couldn't get it done, but the private sector gets it done. So if they're not very good at innovation, why would you want them to be involved in funding innovation, which by its very nature, Rowdy, if you're an inventor, you've probably gone to investors and said, hey, I've got a great new idea. And if there are people who've got some money, you know, because you know them as perhaps a source of capital, so you go to them and 50 other inventors go to them. That private investor gets to say, you know what, Rowdy, you've got a good idea. And these other five guys or gals don't. And he funds your idea. And he knows he may lose, but he's con going to consider that. Can you tell me why would you trust the government to be involved in picking the winners and losers when they're no good at efficiency and they're no good at innovation? Well, because the government has this uh, ability of looking at all of us. We all had to apply for all the, all the, uh, the licensings and all the, all the different specs. So the government get, has this vast, vast knowledge of all of us, all of us inventors. Are you kidding me? Rowdy, you sound like a fan of government. Can you tell me where they've used this half-vast you know, knowledge of everything to pick what works and what does not work? Because I can give you lots of examples where the government usually picks the wrong way to do it. I mean, if, for example, right. do, you ever, do you ever order something delivered to your house? Yes, sir. Do you, think that, do you think that FedEx and UPS are more innovative in delivering things than the U.S. Postal Service? Way more. In fact, I use FedEx on a daily basis and, and on and, UPS. And the thing is, the Postal Service has been losing money for decades and continues to lose money they don't innovate worth a damn. Now, I'm not faulting the individual That's letter right. carrier. You, you just work for the operation. But why would you want a bunch that run Amtrak, not very, not very innovative, not very efficient, U.S. Postal Service, not very innovative, not very efficient, the DMV? If the average retail store operated with the efficiency of the DMV, would they not be bankrupt? That's, I don't I don't disagree with you on there. But then let me why do you want them involved in any way, shape, or form? Because they have this vast knowledge of all of us. Just, I mean, I know there's a lot, a lot of people out there, including yourself, and, and most cases, myself included, it's like we don't want them involved in our business. But when we want help, who do we go to? Who do you think knows more about Americans, the average social media private company or the government? The social media company, you're right. Yeah, because it's their job to know their customer base. And if somebody like you comes and says, I made a, me a better mousetrap, they're going to say, we know how to sell this to the people out there who want to buy mousetraps. You take that to the government, they're going to say, we're going to have to regulate you out of business, Rowdy. But, Rowdy, you're a good naysayer and you're a good sport. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. 
So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com. View the videos and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.